0: Amen. I hope it was a time of worship for you as you commune with the Lord and all that he has done. You speak to him in that last song and worship him in the beauty of his holiness and in spirit and truth. It's good to be with you. I'm Kurt Parker. Let's, uh, if you would, uh, take a break right now. If you have little ones up to grade four and you want them to be in children's church, they can be dismissed at this time. For the rest of you, turn in your copy of God's word, if you would, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5, we are approaching the end of this marvelous chapter, and it has been rich for us, for me personally, for you, as we've understood much of Paul's heart here and confidence in the future. I pray that you've been in the Word today and this week, faithfully. If you haven't, you're starving this morning, and the Lord wouldn't have you be that way. He desires for you to feast on His Word each day, so make sure you take time, uh, set time aside in your day that you can be in the Word. Uh, there is a trifold there on the back welcome table, you can grab that and that will help you if, uh, if you read on a digital format, they have many reading plans, but plan to be through the Word each, each day, go through the Word, uh, cover to cover in a year, begin to uh, assimilate those things, You'll, you will then begin to grow as the Lord would have you grow uh, and be sanctified by the truth. His word is truth, so let me encourage you to do that. Throughout the spring and the summer, we have been taking a close look at Chapter Five from Paul's Second Corinthians letter. It's been a remarkable journey uh, as we have been able to bring our thoughts really in uh, into physical death and in line with the future that God has secured for us for each those who believe and and really come away with some tremendous confidence so that we. Uh, so much so we perhaps say with Paul, as we started this passage back at the end of that first section, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And I hope that in the time that we have spent studying these things on the, the confidence we have in the future, that you could confidently say that regardless of what your day may hold today, perhaps in spite of what your day holds or knowing that your day is going to hold something uh, which would be less than what you perhaps thought it would be, you can say, we are of good courage. We've also had our understanding of the future Bema seat judgment clarified, and, and we know what that's going to look like and what we should be about so that we can have confidence in that future meeting. And also so that we can understand what Paul meant in his letter to the church in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, so that you may walk, will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. And that's a joy to know that, knowing that you're looking forward to that beam seat judgment. You can't do anything about uh, yesterday and the future, but you can certainly do a lot about the end. And so we have a lot of understanding now from Paul's heart as to what that's supposed to look like. And we have the joy of learning how to be confident in our conscience, which really plays a very direct role in supplying uh, our action. And, and when I say confident in our conscience, I'm not saying in a subjective way I feel really good about myself as if that somehow is the standard, but instead having our conscience informed by the Word of God and then be able to check on my motives and my plans along the way uh, with the Word of God as I do my ministry. And, and that confident conscience really summed up by Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 and 14. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, understanding uh, that future day, we persuade men, everything that we do then becomes uh, driven, if you will, motivated by a future meeting with the lord all your ministry everything all the people who are under your care starting with your family and moving out from there that you are informing them and helping them along the way so they are ready for that future day and then verse 14 for the love of christ controls us really transitioned us into that next section and that's really checking in and making sure that everything we do in the ministry the lord has given us is prompted by that future meeting that future judgment and that ministry uh, is really constrained, as we saw in verse 14, it's constrained, it's, it's controlled by this overwhelming love displayed in the substitutionary death of Jesus on our behalf. And so everything that we do as we're driven along uh, to do ministry by motivation of, of uh, that future day, everything's constrained by this marvelous thought of the love of Christ on our behalf, giving himself while we were yet sinners. And we saw last time, when you go, when you go from death to life, your life is going to change. And I think that's just obvious, but I, I, I think it's important to point it out that when you have come to faith and you've gone from, as Scripture says, death to life, your life will change. And that's really where the direction we're going right now with this next section. And when you realize that Jesus died in place of everyone, and in your conscience you know that your life is constrained or controlled by that remarkable love and that sacrifice. And that's how Paul could keep on doing what he was doing without burning out, without giving up, without being overwhelmed And verse 15 shows us really what that looks like, and this confidence in this transformation is what we'll look at today. But look at verse 15, if you would, as we really move into our next section. Uh, Verse 15, Paul says, and he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And and that is a tremendous thing to realize, and that is our first confidence and transformation principle. That's number one. Here it is. Um, And this is such a significant change as to be clearly recognizable. When you come to faith, uh, your confident future in Christ is marked by, here it is, a realigned life. You don't live for you anymore. You live for Jesus. And I think if you could just sum up Christianity in in the simplest terms, and I've told you this before, as we go through different passages in the Word of God, there's places where you can just say, okay, that really kind of sums up uh, what, what we're supposed to do. As a believer, now it doesn't give us all the details, does it? And so we continue to teach the word of God, so you may be uh, you may be equipped for every good work. But the fact of the matter is that he died for all, so that they who live might uh, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again in their behalf. And that's a marvelous thing to think about. You used to live for you, but when you died and rose, you and. You, you live now for Christ. You, you used to live for the world. You used to live for the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. That should not mark your existence now if you've died and rose with Christ. see, And, and now, even though you don't do it perfectly, you see this transformation begin at redemption. That you now live for Jesus. It's a wonderful thing to realize that when you died in Christ and you rose in Christ and he works his sanctifying process in you and you no longer desire to live for yourself. And that's why Paul could say in Acts chapter 20, he says, but I do not consider, he says, my life of any account as dear to me so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. My life doesn't matter, Paul says. I don't live for myself anymore. All that matters is that I do what God has committed and commanded me to do. And, and all that matters is that Christ lives through me, his will, his purpose, his goals, his, his glory, his honor, his purposes, his truth, that's all. Nothing else, nothing more. See. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So he loved me and he gave himself up for me. That's it for Paul. That's Christ's love made manifest to me, the worst of sinners. I died in Christ, I was raised in Christ, all his doing, so I don't live for myself anymore. See? So he just kind of sums up his life. I've, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live for me anymore. See? Romans chapter 14, again, very same idea. For not one of us lives for himself, not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that what? He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. And that also confirms some of what we studied last time concerning Christ's death for all. The sins of all mankind were born by Christ on the cross. And we saw that at length last time. But not everyone gets the benefit of that death. Let's see, First Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. For, it is, for this we labor and strive, because we've fixed our hope, on the living God, who is the Savior of whom? All men, especially of believers. So Jesus will always be known, beloved, as the Savior of all men, even though not all men will be saved, right? And so that kind of expounds a little bit on what we didn't have time to do last time. Christ died. He lived again. He'll forever be known as the Lord of the living, those those who have come and will come to life in Christ, and the dead, those who haven't and will not. He'll be Lord of both. And forever known that way, but he is the savior of all men. And those who have come to life in Christ can be confident in the transformation. It'll be the beginning of the end of living for themselves. Now, because we, we know that to be the reality to, for Paul, it is the reality for all true believers. So we don't just have to say, well, Paul exists kind of in a world unto himself. He says this and reveals his heart so we can understand and align ourselves with it. And the question, here, here it is, beloved, the question is only a question of degree. Well, you can see that, I think, right? I mean, it's not whether or not you will or you won't. If you're truly born again, then you're no longer going to live for yourself. You're going to live for Christ. And now it's just a matter of degree. And I say that to say that to the degree that you do, so is the spiritual house built with gold, silver, and costly stone. You can see that, right? So it's a matter of degree. You're going to no longer live for yourself. You're going to live for Christ. That's a transformation that occurs in everyone who's come to life, see, And so when you do that, to the degree you do that, so goes the spiritual house built with gold, silver, costly stone. So that refers back to what we looked at before. And so goes the nature of the future meeting with Christ, which we want to remind people of all the time. And so goes your confidence in the conscience as you see the indicators of this life given away for the gospel and for discipleship. So your conscience becomes clear, it's informed correctly, and it it reports back correctly. Why? Because you're beginning to live not for you, but for Christ, and by matter of... of degree now, I think we could say that Peter understood this when he said in first 1 peter one twenty four he says this, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree there's a substitutionary death for everyone, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for his wounds. you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now You've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. There's that idea of substitution again and then and then the response so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See that? So it, it's not just that now we want to, it's that now we can, see, because we have a new nature, a new creation indwelt and powered by the Holy Spirit. And again, it's a matter of degree. And the same thing Paul told Titus to teach in Titus 2, he says, he says this. Now this is... Uh, same exact thing Paul's teaching all over the place, giving the same exact pointers, helping them understand how to align their life. Paul tells Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Again, uh, the same thing we noticed last week, the sins of every man, what? Born in Christ's death. Uh, Does that mean that all will be saved? Well, we know that that isn't the case, so the answer there is no. But because of that great love shown in this marvelous grace, what's the response? Verse 12, instructing us, to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. What did he say in our passage? That we no longer live for ourselves, but for them who died and rose again on our behalf, see? So, same, same idea. No, no one could do this before, see? When you were dead, and you hadn't come to life in Christ, you couldn't do this. But the redeemed can do this. And then this next part, it's the great hope of all the redeemed. And again, both of these are a matter of degree. Looking for the blessed hope... And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, there's that substitution, to redeem us from every lawless deed, purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And in verse 14, we have that substitution idea again, and and it wasn't his plan just to deliver us from death. He wants to transform us into pure and righteous people, see? And again... As with all of these, they are not maybe I will, maybe I won't. They are a matter of degree. This is exactly what's going to appear in your life if you're born again. And so the degree that you do it, so goes the spiritual house built with gold, silver, and costly stones. And so goes the nature of the future meeting with Christ. And so goes your confidence in your conscience. Listen, as you see the indicators of life denying ungodliness and worldly pleasures and desires and zealous for what? zealous for good deeds. So as you see those things at work, you realize the more you're living that way, the more your consciousness is informed correctly. You know that what you're doing is how the Lord would have you do it. And so your confident future is marked by a transformation of a realigned life. See? So Jesus died in our place. He took care of our sin. He rose on our behalf. That took care of our righteousness. And Paul's response is, I only live for the Lord. I only live for righteousness sake. I'm not for myself. See? Now, Let's go back to our text, the passage we're going to look at. Uh, we're going to look at today, verses 16 and 17. I think, indeed, one of the most unique in the whole epistle. And one of my favorites, perhaps yours, one of them, perhaps, is one that you've memorized long ago. It's a marvelous passage. It tells us, now, uh, when, when uh, that transformation began. See, when did Paul begin to feel this way? When did Paul begin to act this way? Look at verse 16, if you would, of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll read verse 16 and 17. Therefore... From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now, we know him this way no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Let's pause right there. Now, as you know, because we've talked about it many times, the word therefore lets us know that this next passage is a consequence of the previous verse. And, and so, wonderfully, in this confidence, in this outcome of dying and, and rising with Christ, so, it's going to be a marvelous thing, as we pointed out in our first principle, it produces a realigned life. So, we understand that dying and rising with Christ produces a realigned life, to a matter of degree. You are no longer going to live for yourself, you're going to live for Christ, okay? Pointed that out, it produces a realigned life, no longer living for yourself, but for him who died and rose for us. So, that's what, therefore... Is therefore, it's referring to that. And, and then that being the case, he follows up then and he says, from now on. So the point being, since we were in Christ redeemed, since we died and rose again and entered a new life, therefore, from then on, since the time of conversion, that's what he's saying. So when did this all start? Well, since the time we entered into this substitutionary provision of Jesus Christ personally by faith. Since salvation, since the moment of his conversion, he's begun to walk in newness of life. And at this very time, he began to walk in newness of life. From then on, Paul says, catch this, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Since that time, we don't recognize anyone according to the flesh. I hope, beloved, that this resonates with you. This is a very significant passage. And I'm going to lay some foundation here and then move into your response. But literally, that's to perceive. It's the Greek verb oidomen. Perfect active indicative. Perfect tense is the present ongoing result of a completed action. And and what is the completed action? Salvation. When you came to faith, you died, you rose, a redeemed saint, that's your new reality. And we're going to see more of the impact of this truth on our own actions in just a moment. But we should point out that this confidence and transformation principle number two is this. A response by faith to the grace of salvation offered through Christ's death and resurrection alters how God sees you. That's where we're going to start. Okay, it shouldn't surprise us that we should not look at people according to the flesh because the lord looks at us according to the spirit and that's the foundation And what do we mean by that? Well, as paul is simply repeating what he knows about the nature of salvation revealed to him by the father He illustrates this principle galatians chapter 4 verse 4 listen to this uh, passage But when the fullness of time came God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So you used to be what? A slave of sin. Right. So, so uh, recognize... Uh, regardless of your vices, no matter how profane you were, no matter what you did in your previous life. So God could have classified you in all kinds of ways, but how does he classify you? As a slave to sin, see? You used to be a slave to sin. But now what are you? You're a son and an heir, see? That's your identity. Now catch this, Ephesians 2, verse 13, we see the same thing going on here. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ and then look at verse 19 so then you who are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household so you used to be what you used to be far off that's how God looked at you regardless of what your vices were regardless of how profane you were no matter what you did you might have been a murderer you might have been a thief you might have been a drunkard you, it doesn't matter okay Because God classifies you as far off, see, far off. You used to be a stranger and an alien to what? To the promises of God, to faith in Christ. You didn't know these things. You weren't familiar with them. That wasn't where you lived. It wasn't going to be your future home. That's why he uses all those words, see. But now, what are you? Now you're a citizen of heaven together with the other redeemed, and you're part of the household of God. That is your identity, see, You may not feel like that on different days from day to day, and I've told you before, sometimes at the end of some days, the only person who knows you're saved is the Lord. Right? I mean, you might have impacted a bunch of people, and none of them thought He's born again. But your identity is what? Your identity is that you are a citizen of heaven together with the other redeemed, and you're part of the household of God. That's your reality, see? And that should bring you great confidence. That's a transformation that occurs, but. Further, it's how the Lord looks at you, both prior and after salvation. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews twelve twenty three addresses you in this way. This is one. If you're if you've been with us, you know um, you know this from uh, from the be the church class. Part of being a believer is is your identity. Here's your identity: the General Assembly and Church of the Firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We could put that on our sign. Hard to read though when you're going forty five. But that's you, see? That's your reality. Obviously, you understand that, and that's who you are, no matter how you feel about it on any given day. That's how the Lord looks at you. That's your reality. That's your identity. Now, if this is how, catch this, this is the transition here, and I want to stop here because I want to move into what we're supposed to do. What's our response? This is how the Lord looks at you. These things that we mentioned, and, and we barely scratched the surface of how the Lord looks at you. We could have looked at that all day today. But the fact of the matter is, If these things are true, and they are, then mark this, there is an outworking of that reality and what Paul, what does Paul say that is to be? Now let's look at the next passage. We, so he takes you in, doesn't he? He likes to scoop us all up and make sure, because he's revealing his own heart, how he looks at people, he's wanting to make sure that you get taken in. We recognize no one according to the flesh. What's that mean? Well, we know that God doesn't recognize us any longer according to our old pattern of life, does he? And and that impacts the way we look, then, at others as well. He says, since conversion, we no longer evaluate people externally. Got that? What's that mean? Well, by virtue of this new life has come a new oidamen, a new reality. A a new way to perceive, a new perspective is spiritual knowledge. It's spiritual insight, if you would. And, And he's saying, we no longer see people purely from the outside. We no longer see them purely from the physical perspective. In fact, for believers... All of our evaluations, all of our judgments, all of our assessments of people, which were once simply, and you understand this, I think, were once simply in the light of their physical appearance. It's easy to do that still, isn't it? You evaluate someone in light of their physical appearance, maybe their social or economic orientation, their personality. Paul says, since this time of coming to life in Christ, we no longer evaluate people that way anymore. That. That's how unregenerate people evaluate, and we can't do that anymore, see? For instance, and just to put this in kind of a reality that you might experience today or this week, you might meet somebody. They might be a lovely person, very gracious, perhaps very refined, maybe educated. Everything about them is, is charming to you, uh, and, but as a believer, when they go away, there's this profound lingering question in your mind. And that question has nothing to do with their social graces and nothing to do with how they're dressed or what they do or how they fit into your world. What does it have to do with? What is their relationship to God? Right? This is a transformation that's worked in you when you come to faith. And again, it's a matter of degree. Maybe you're still evaluating people according to the flesh, which is why Paul says we no longer do it. Because the implication is that maybe you are. But you're new. And in there is this new reaction, and the way we 're supposed to evaluate, and this is what it 's supposed to look like. See now, mark this: it has to do with their relationship to God because you can no longer see people purely in the flesh you You may have a neighbor who's very kind you, you may you know, maybe there 's an illness in your family, they come over, they minister to you, you know they bring food to you, maybe they mow your grass, or whatever. They do stuff well beyond, you know, the call of duty. They get the good neighbor award, you know, because they're just fantastic or whatever, okay? And and they show love and they show kindness to you and you feel very, very attracted to and affectionate towards that neighbor. But you will never in your mind, once you come to faith, be contented with that. In fact, the more affection you feel at, at, towards them, the more distress you're going to feel. Why? Because until that neighbor has the right relationship with the living God, you're going to feel uncomfortable about that whole thing. And you should, because that's the new you, see? That's how you start looking at people now. I I think that's a marvelous transition. And that could change a lot of things about our life, particularly if we're interested in doing, as Ben is teaching us in Sunday school, about becoming an evangelist. I think one of the very foundational things that has to be there is when you're looking at someone, you are seeing them differently than you did. Everyone, you are evaluating them according to the Spirit, see? And in, in other words, you'll look at someone, perhaps they're very gracious to you, whatever, but they are far off. Do you understand? They're aliens and strangers lost under a curse. Do you get that? And not from a holier than that perspective. It's a heart that is disturbed that that's the case, See? Don't take people at face value. You, you can't just walk away and say, well, that's a really great person. The more impressed you are about them, the more deeply burdened you're going to be for them. And, and you may have the same, now, catch this, this may be the same situation on the other side, see, of the social scale. You, you, know, you may see someone who's ruined themselves with alcohol. They've ruined themselves with drugs. You know, somebody who's on the street or, or and this I, puts us right into the news today, you know, someone extremely wealthy like a Jeffrey Epstein or a Harvey Weinstein. Right? I mean, you know, Matt Lauer, who have wrecked themselves, and it's easy to say, you know, get these people off the streets, lock these creeps up, give them the punishment they deserve, but that cannot be your primary reaction to them, beloved, anymore. Why? Because you're new, and now you look at someone according to the Spirit, don't you? And you realize that they're lost. And their lostness and their depraved state has put them in a position where they can, with the money they brought in, exercise that depravity to a greater degree than maybe the person sat next to you, but it's the same before the Lord. They're just far off, and they need to be what? Brought near. And so one of the transformation principles is this, and when you see this in your life, a realigned life, you're living for Jesus. And the second one, which is you're not going to evaluate people like you used to, see, Part of this confidence we can have in the transformation is this principle that when you look at people, there's a discernment because you have the ability to understand the implications of their lifestyle for eternity, see? And you didn't have that ability before, but now you do. And that is a spiritual transformation. And when you look at them, there's this ache in your heart, isn't there? Because you understand, because you no longer see people according to the flesh. And again, the more you're doing that, that's... that's It's not that you maybe you are going to do that or maybe you won't. You're going to do that, and to the degree you do that, so goes what? You're building with gold, silver, and costly stones. So goes your meeting with this future meeting with Christ, right? So goes your conscience witnessing to you properly informed and doing what it's supposed to do. So Paul's saying, you know, I don't judge anybody that way anymore. This is all in the past, and it appears... That you could even look back at verse 12 and see Paul answering that question. Remember, look at verse 12 in your copy of God's Word. We looked at that before. and Remember, I told you part of part of the teaching that you do, you're going to be find your consciences right if you're forming the church to be discerning. But he says this in verse 12. He says, we're not again commending ourselves to you but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us. See it? So that you will have an answer for those who take pride in what? Appearance and not in heart, Right? He goes, part of that is an ability to discern what's going on in the heart because now you're new and you have that, you have that option. You didn't have it before. Paul's like, you know, I'm not one, I'm not like one of those people there. There are those he's talking about, you know, the Pharisees in Galatians chapter six, verse 12, he says this, he says, those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh, try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will be not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Of all the externals are important to these guys. See, what it looks like on the outside, that's super important. But the Pharisees and Sadducees are there so that you will what know what not to be like. We don't evaluate people on the outside. That's not what we do now. All those worldly evaluations, Paul says, have been crucified to me. That doesn't matter to me now. It's all about the cross. It's all about a new perspective. Remember, in just a few chapters, we're going to read how some in this church evaluated Paul. 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. Look at this. This is what they say about him. For they say, this is speaking about Paul, they, people who are criticizing him, they who are the worried about the externals, not the heart, They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. That's real nice. That's the way worldly people judge, okay? And the false teachers and the leaders in the church tried to stir up trouble, and they they did stir up trouble for Paul in the church. It caused great heartache for him. But Paul says, I no longer see people the way I once saw them. You know how I used to see them? I used to see them like I saw myself. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, zealous for the law, a Pharisee of Pharisees, all that external stuff. But when Paul died and rose with Christ, how did he view all that? Philippians chapter 3 verse 4. I might myself have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. If you want to just compare flesh with flesh, I got gotcha, you, he says. Circumcised. The eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Do you do that? You might have been zealous for the law. Did you chase after the church? You know, you could see Paul just being foolish, right? As to the righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. External, external, flesh, flesh, deeds, deeds, works, works, right? And then he says this. But whatever things were gained to me, what? Those I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. See, it was all just trash, Paul says. It was meaningless. We don't look at people that way. None of that stuff mattered And it made a difference in the way the Jew named Paul began to interact with the Gentiles, didn't it? All that previous prejudice, all that animosity that the Jew would have in their heart towards the Gentiles, replaced by a spiritual perspective and a burden for the unredeemed. And he even said this in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. He says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's... Oh my goodness, he did not just say that to a bunch of Jews. You are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. See, what? Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise? He didn't evaluate anyone from the flesh anymore. Only what they need, Christ, or what they are in Christ. And he didn't judge by external features. He was just interested in the heart. He, He was even concerned about shallowness in a believer's walk. See, he wanted to see every man mature in Christ. And all the social barriers disappeared. And Paul just saw external mattered no more, and what mattered was the eternal. And that's what happens when you come to faith, see? It's just a matter of degree. Now, let's clarify something. I'm not saying that you can't have discernment. I'm not saying that when you see homosexual behavior, that you should just say, oh, well, it's fine. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, should you be able to discern that this is someone who has believed the lie, and they're lost, See? And they're far off, and they're aliens and strangers, and they know they don't understand righteousness. That's where they are, see? Not that you don't witness to them because you don't want to judge them. I, don't want, I want to make that clear. You have discernment, but the discernment is based in a spiritual light, no longer in physical, see? Now, let's look at the rest of verse 16. 2 Corinthians five sixteen. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. And I, I think Paul's just clarifying his point. In other words, in the past, all he had was a head knowledge of Jesus. Okay? That, that doesn't appear to mean that he was born again. It just to mean, it appears to mean that he wasn't. Okay? He knew Christ in the flesh. See, Paul's just remembering his human assessment of Jesus. What was that? Jesus, a Jewish man, stirring up trouble, claiming to be equal with God. You know, bossing everybody around in the temple. I mean, you know, fooling a bunch of uneducated fishermen into following him. Uh, You know, hanging out with outcasts and tax collectors and prostitutes. Defiling himself. Paul, Paul knew that this man wasn't the true Messiah. He was a blasphemer. He was a dangerous teacher of heresy. And everybody who followed him was worthy of death. And he finally got what he deserved. Jesus did. That's what Paul thought in the flesh. And, and that's what everyone who followed him in that way deserved too. And so Paul did his best to make sure that happened. So that's Paul knowing Jesus in the flesh. Acts chapter 26 verse 9. Paul's before Agrippa. He expresses that very sentiment. Remember this? He says, so then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. See, Jesus got what he deserved, and they need to get what they deserve. They need to be put to death. Bunch of blasphemers, fools, following some foolish uh, prophet who didn't matter. So this is Paul, knowing Jesus in the flesh. And so I punished them often in the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I pursued them, even to foreign cities. Amazing, isn't it? How passionate he is. This came from knowing Christ in the flesh. See. A human assessment. But all that changed when he came to know Jesus. On the way to Damascus. and When Paul died in Christ and rose with Christ. Then all he could say was. The love of Christ controls us. And the mind of Christ is now at work in me. And I don't evaluate anybody that way anymore. See. and Then that takes us to verse 17. Look there if you would. Therefore. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And this is the passage that I told you probably has been memorized and very familiar to you. And it also starts with, therefore. Just lets us know that that next passage is a consequence from the previous one, which was the consequence of the previous verse 15, where he died and we died with him. And for those who live with him, everything's changed. Your life is realigned, and you live for Jesus. And God looks at you differently, and you look at others differently. And then this next confidence and transformation principle, number four, the consequences of dying in Christ and rising in Christ results in a radical recreation. And beloved, this is the handiwork of God and not something you've done on your own. God is at work doing this. This is precisely Jesus' teaching in John 3, verse 3. He says this, Jesus answered and said to him, who's he speaking to, remember? Nicodemus comes to him after dark, wants a meeting. He knows something's up. He knows he's not aligned correctly. Holy Spirit's drawing him. Jesus is teaching him. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you have to be born again. And the death then, the resurrection of Christ, had such a profound change and produced such a profound change in Paul's life Therefore he concludes if any man is in Christ, he's going to have the same kind of profound change and old things shall pass away, and new things come. No matter who he is or, or what he is, no matter how wicked God delights in taking the chief of sinners, a blasphemer, a worst of prostitutes, drunkards, tax collectors. Here's the wideness of God's mercy gave Paul his evangelistic commission. This new knowledge, this new perception, this new wisdom. Now he has spiritual insight. You don't live for temporal things. You don't live for earthly things. You don't evaluate people on the surface. You live for the kingdom. You live for Christ, and and you you see people at the heart, and you see them in their relationship to God, not in their relationship with each other, see? And that expression, in Christ, just really sums up briefly and really, as profoundly as possible, the significance of someone 's redemption I mean it speaks of our security in him, who, who bore our sin in his body and the judgment of God against our sin. It speaks of our acceptance in him, whom, whom God alone is well pleased. it speaks of our assurance for the future in him, who, who is the resurrection and the life and the guarantee of our inheritance. It, it speaks it speaks of the inheritance of the glory in Him who is the only begotten of the Son, the sole heir. Therefore, we inherit only in Him. I mean, it just speaks of all so many marvelous things. But most importantly for our passage, when a person is in Christ, he or she has already become part of the new creation. See, and we've said this over and over again, so we're not spending a lot of time here. You are fit for heaven on the inside. Did you know that? You're, the only part that's not ready for heaven yet is the body. And someday, it's going to be made new. But you are fit and you're part of the new creation. Behold, the new has come. The old has passed away. And, and that's how you see others as well. See? That just means that God has planted new desires and new loves and new inclinations and new appetites and new truths and new values. And they are nourished and they're developed and they triumph over the remaining flesh as we continue to be transformed into that image of Christ. That's what it means. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. A new creature. And Paul doesn't talk about it here, but there's a sanctifying work that's occurring, changing us into the image of Jesus. And we we see that in other passages uh, that we've read. Uh, This participation in this new creation, it's just reflected in just a changed outlook, and it's going to culminate in the renewal of the whole person. Someday you're going to be caught away. A resurrection to immortality, right? A new created order at the resurrection. Galatians chapter 6 verse 15 kind of sums that up for us. Neither is there circumcision, neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a what? A new creation, see? A new creation, new reality. That's what God wants to do, recreate you in Christ. In fact, that is the case for you, and your acting on that is now a matter of degree. It's not maybe you'll be a new creation, maybe you won't. You come to faith in Christ. You are a new creation. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 Paul really sums up the reality of a new creation along with the sanctifying work being done until the uh, the resurrection. He says this, he says, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's your new reality. He says, so live like that, which implies that maybe you aren't like you should, but now do, because you can see, and before you couldn't. So in observing the impact of being raised with Christ, Paul says in this last part of verse 17, old things passed away, behold, new things have come. It's a compound verb, aorist, active, indicative. At a time in the past, salvation, old things were left behind. That's the idea and the old ways of thinking and the old ways of evaluating and living for yourself and looking at people according to the flesh all those things are part of your past and now you are what you're free of those things it is a completed act with a continuing reality and again your incorporation is a matter of degree see then In this interjection behold he says so the verb's changed to an interjection just to show Paul's emotion you could say it like this pay attention Look closely, see what's happening. Wow, or oh my, that's, that's what Paul's expressing. Behold, check this out. What? New things have come. Behold, new things have come. And of course, you know this. It doesn't mean no more sin, because you still have this body that has its desires, right? You still have the appetites in this flesh, It just means that God has planted new desires and new loves and new inclinations and new appetites and new truths and new values. And they're nourished and they're developed and they triumph over the remaining flesh as we continue to be transformed in the image of Christ. And and that just goes right along with all the other new things from the New Testament, right? I mean, you fit right in with a new covenant and a new commandment and a new man and some of the things that we're going to be received and enjoyed later, a new name, And, you know, a new song, and a new heaven, and a new earth, and a new Jerusalem. And he that sits on the throne says, "Well, what, what? Behold, I make all things new. So it shouldn't surprise you that you are new. And that's the transformation reality for you, see? It's not maybe I'm new, maybe I'm not. You are new, and now it's a matter of degree. How you begin to be transformed into the image of Christ through the sanctifying of the word of God, see? And so you're fitting right in here and in good company, See? New things have come. Perfect, active, indicative. A continuing condition of fact. New understanding, new spirituality, new understanding of spiritual truth, new understanding of time. Right? You have a new understanding of time, don't you? Teach me the number of my days and I to present to you what? A heart of wisdom. When, when you're laying in your bed late at night and you, and you wake up and you, everything's quiet, Do you ever try to just kind of figure out where where your life is, how you're aligning it? Do you ever pray, Lord, teach me to number my days that I can present to you a heart of wisdom? You have a new perception of time. You know your time here is limited. Nobody's getting out of here alive, probably. Okay? A few will, maybe. But that doesn't matter anymore, does it? Because you're not living for yourself anymore anyway, and You're looking forward to that meeting with Christ, and you know that this is just a very short day, and there's a super long tomorrow, which you will live for eternity with a new body. So your times, the the idea of time has changed for you, hasn't it? But it also makes you redeem this short time because this is the time that you can do the, t- the evangelizing. This is the time you can do the discipling. This is when you produce new little disciples in your little in your own house that are going to grow up and carry the word out from there. That's what you want, right? I mean, you, obviously, you want them to have all kinds of experiences. You want them to be, you know, all American. You want them to be all these kinds of things, right? But you really want them to be what? A disciple, don't you? I mean, that's a living death if they grow up and reject everything that you know to be true about the reality of Christ in you. That's a living death. I would never want to. I would never want to be alive to see my kids reject Christ, and I also don't want to be the reason they do, beloved. And I pray this a lot to myself, and I've told you as we've gone through the child um, rearing class and and and. Um, Child dedication. You want to be a clean window. I've prayed this, Lord, help me be a clean window. I want them to see Christ, and I don't want to corrupt that vision at all with the stuff in my own life, see? But if you're living this way, if you understand this transformation, then you're going to be that kind of dad or mom, see? Or uncle or grandpa or whatever, see? Continuing condition effect. New things have come. A new understanding of eternity. Right? Of truth. We now live for eternity, don't we? we? We don't live for time. The one who's in Christ has this new outlook on everything. And, and and this is the true perception, by the way. okay, This is not some kind of false idea that Christians embrace that's not connected with reality. Understanding that you don't live for time anymore, then that eternity is the thing. That is the reality. The wor- And again, that's the way you look at the world now. They're, they're, they want to... Get all they can, can all they can get, and sit on the can, right? And you understand that that's that's not reality, okay? That's not reality. You understand reality now in the way you never did before because you've been transformed. And we live in the midst of this old creation where we have this new creation perspective because God's made you new. And that's confidence for your future. I want to close with this passage. We have a few minutes. And I want you just to meditate on it. Because its meaning is explained from our passage this morning. And you perhaps have read this many times. It's one of my favorite sections in all the scriptures. And I, I know I say that a lot. But this is really one of them. Um, because there's so much here. And you kind of wonder, how do I do that? You know, How, how is this? Can, how can this be true? But I w- really want to use it as a benediction for you this morning. Really to meditate on... As we prepare our hearts to close out our time together. It's found in Colossians chapter 3 verse 1. It goes through verse 15. I'll just read it. Listen. And just talk to the Lord if you would. As you would if you were in your own time. In your own quiet time. Therefore if you have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Not on the things that are on the earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth and do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being revealed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all, so that those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you And beloved, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. That's your reality, beloved. That's your reality. That's who you are, and that's what you can do. You couldn't do that before. But you died with Christ and you rose with Christ. And now these things are to be true in every, in an in, ever increasing measure. In ever increasing measure, beloved. In and now it's a matter of degree, isn't it? It's a matter of degree. Renewed in true knowledge. It's a matter of degree that you don't look at people like the world looks at them. It's a matter of degree that you consider immorality and impurity and evil desire and greed and idolatry, that you consider them dead. They are dead. You aren't responsible for them anymore. Christ has borne your payment on the cross. And wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. You're not one of them. You're new, see? So this is what that's supposed to look like. Your passion, your future... And all along the path of your life, beloved, the Lord is sanctifying you, and that provides such great confidence for our future as you look and see this marvelous transformation that begins to take shape in your life. Amen? Let's bow and be dismissed in a word of prayer, if you would. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to, to be in your word. We thank you. We thank you for an opportunity to read and understand and see ourselves as you see us and begin to see others as you see them. Not evaluating according to the flesh, not a sum of their social economic status, not a sum of their sin, not a sum of how nice they are, but that they're far off and you want them close and that really becomes this marvelous foundation for ministry because we realize even those who are in the faith need to be equipped for every good work. And so whatever level it is of ministry, whether it's the evangelism that's going on, a first a first interaction with the gospel, uh, numerous times later where we're shining light on green fruit or getting to harvest or or seeing people come and be baptized and then growing in, in their discipleship and understanding of you, it's all part of looking at, people the way you would have us look at them. And our whole life has been realigned in this respect. We don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for the one who died and rose again on our behalf. The substitutionary atonement that took effect when we rose. And we thank you so much for that. So Father, help us to be a church like that. Help us to start today, even on our own little families, moving out, and where we at work and, and our professional involvement and, and our friendships outside the church and all those things, Lord, help us to have a new outlook and a new way we react, settled in an understanding that you have done these things and you have begun a good work and you're faithful to complete it. We look forward to that day that we see you. We long for it be absent from this body to be present with you and that far better but while we're here lord help it to be far better for those that we interact with on a day-to-day basis as paul said if i stay on in the flesh that's better for you help that to be help that to be the witness of each of us if we stayed on in the flesh tomorrow if we're here for the next 30 40 50 years help that to have been better for those who are around us not living for ourselves not amassing a fortune that we're going to leave behind, investing in things that last and giving away those things which we've received. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.